WVIA's Mind Over Matter, a mental health initiative, is underwritten by Geisinger. When you hear Geisinger, what comes to mind? A hospital, doctors, health insurance? We're all those things. But here's something you might not think of. We're also your local pharmacy. Geisinger Pharmacy isn't just for people in the hospital, it's for you. Want to fill a prescription? We've got you covered. Just need over-the-counter stuff? We've got that too. And Geisinger Pharmacy is run by your friends and neighbors. We're your local healthcare system and your local pharmacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I'm Tracy Matisak, and in this episode, we're talking about opioid addiction. Since the 1990s, opioid addiction has reached epidemic levels. Three million Americans and some 16 million people worldwide struggle with an opioid use disorder. In fact, opioids are Pennsylvania's number one public health and public safety crisis. Overdoses from all types of opioids have been on the rise for years. According to the National Institutes of Health, as of 2021, roughly 220 people were dying every day from opioid overdoses. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic didn't help. So how did we get here and what's being done to save lives and prevent addiction in the first place? How do individuals and their families get help when addiction upends their lives? Our guest is Dr. Joseph Valdez. His responsibilities include providing addiction treatment services at the Geisinger Center of Excellence in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, which specializes in treatment for opioid addiction. He's also the director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program at Geisinger. Dr. Valdez, welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. Good afternoon, Tracy. Thank you for having me on. So when we think about opioids, I think most of us tend to think of painkillers. Can you give us some examples of opioids that are commonly used and abused, whether it's the kind that are prescribed by a physician or the kind that you can buy on the street? Uh, yeah. So opioids are, you know, a very powerful uh, class of, of drugs. They've been around. Uh, the pharmaceutical has been around for many years, you know, thousands of years from derivatives from the opioid, opium uh, plant, you know, the poppy plant. And there are, you know, things that are derived directly from this, such as morphine, which is a powerful opioid, and, and heroin has been derived from this. And then there are opioids that have been made in the pharmaceutical industry, synthetic opioids such as oxycodone or oxycontin, Percocet, Vicodin. Uh, these are all examples of opioids. But the, the ones that are commonly maybe misused would, in, would involve oxycodone and uh, heroin, and more recently, uh, fentanyl, which is a very potent opioid. And doctor, what is it about opioids and the way they work that makes them so addictive? I mean, it's, you know, beyond pain relief, what is it that keeps people coming back for more? Well, they do a very uh, sort of dangerous combination of things. Uh, you know, the opioids interact with receptors throughout our brain and body, and they work to both, one, block pain transmission and decrease pain, and two, to increase feelings of pleasure, euphoria, relaxation. So it's decreasing pain and increasing feelings of relaxation and pleasure. So it, it, you can imagine it's a potent combination. So do they like re release endorphins? So, uh, you know, the opioids and other, you know, other drugs can release a neurotransmitter in the brain, which is called dopamine. 
And dopamine is our what we think of as sort of our reward or pleasure neurotransmitter. It's naturally released, you know, in just about everybody. And, you know, if you eat a piece of chocolate or you have a listen to a good concert or, you know, you have an enjoyable experience, you know, you'll have a little bit of dopamine release in certain areas of the brain. But opioids sort of hijack this system and you know, releases these pleasure neurotransmitters to very high levels over long periods of time in someone who is using them uh, for a long period of time. And it can result in changes in the structure and function fun, function of a person's brain, which really makes it hard for them to, over time, feel normal without using the drug. And it can affect a person's decision-making and ability to resist strong cravings of, of using the drug. So there really acts to just potentially continue uh, that cycle of addiction. I mentioned early on that there are something like 220 people a day who are dying from opioid overdoses. How did we get to this point where this has become such a huge problem? Well, it's a good question. You know, opioids have a long history of, uh, you know, people have had difficulties with opioids for many years, you know, in our history, even dating back to the Civil War, where some veterans started using morphine um, to deal with injuries and, and it became problematic. Heroin itself was uh, a pharmaceutical that was thought to be the heroin in the war on drugs, that it would be this potent analgesic uh, thing. But, you know, it has become, the solution has become the problem in, in that uh, there's this opioid epidemic. You know, you had mentioned in the, the 1990s and early 2000s, we had sort of the epic of the prescription opioid epidemic. So these medications were sort of rampantly overprescribed during that time and you know with noble ambitions of treating pain but uh, we did not recognize or respond well enough to the risks of these medications of addiction and overdose and a lot of factors contributed to that there were you know some deceptive marketing practices from pharmaceutical companies there was some faulty medical sciences that science that downplayed the risk of addiction with these uh, drugs and anyway the end result was you know we started to have this um, Long and we, we're still struggling with this epidemic of overdose, drug overdose deaths since this time. It's more nuanced than that, isn't it? I mean, can you share with us a little of what you see in your practice about what opioid addiction can look like? In other words, what are some of the ways that it impacts a person's life? Mm -hmm. Yes, and you know, we really, it's really, we really think of opioid addiction as a chronic brain disease. So uh, it's a chronic medical illness, and I'd like to think of it as similar to high, high blood pressure or diabetes or depression even. You know, and you may have periods of stability, and over time there may be a setback, a relapse, and a person has some instability. And, uh, you know, it, it is sort of this spectrum that people may go back and forth on for a little while. And when they've actually done studies comparing the success rates for treating drug addiction, compared to other chronic illnesses like diabetes and high blood pressure. And the success rates are similar. You know, the relapse rates are similar, about 50% or so. And it just means that, you know, behavior change over time, and no matter what form it takes, sticking to a diet or continuing to avoid using drugs and staying on track is difficult. Uh, but, you know, we do, the zombie state you mentioned may be someone who's really struggling very severe disease. You know, they're really struggling in a, in a very bad place. But I have the privilege in my uh, practice to see the other side of that. We have many patients who, at one point in time, they have had a lot of 
problems in their life. They may have lost a job, incurred legal difficulties, uh, relationship difficulties, medical issues, you know, and that is the hallmark of addiction, this compulsive need to continue using despite these negative consequences, right? So you may see someone that has been in a very bad state, but over time we can see a real transformation where they I mean, they want to get them their lives on track and repair some of these damages. And, you know, people come and they get well, they come to their appointments, take medication, they uh, go to counseling, they do some hard work. And many people I see, they're, they're succeeding tremendously. They are you know, succeeding with their place of employment, they're working, they have families, uh, and they're doing very well. And it's a pleasure to see that and really inspirational. Yeah, and I think it, it is important important to point out that this is something that can happen to any of us. Um, you know, one of the points that we make on this podcast all the time is about um, removing stigma, right, around issues of mental health. And certainly in this case, you know, we're talking about opioid addiction. This is something that can happen to anybody. Absolutely. You know, I have, uh, throughout the course of my career, treated, you know, many doctors, police officers, firemen, judges, teachers, nurses, you know, it can really, uh, it crosses all sort of uh, bounds of society. So it really can affect anyone. And the stigma really serves to, you know, uh, continue to cause great harm, you know, that patients, people are afraid to discuss if they're having difficulties, they're afraid to be seen having a difficulty when there are effective and evidence-based treatments that they could access, you know, that is something that might impair their ability to do so. So, uh, and in fact, many patients that come to work clinics, they are very reticent at first and nervous, understandably. And we often get feedback that they appreciate when they come to one of our clinics, it feels like going to just any other medical appointment, any other medical uh, doctor. And that may have not have been their experiences in the past when they tried to get treatment, so they do appreciate treating it, and that's the, that's the goal to kind of destigmatize this illness. Yeah, in recent years, doctor, we've been hearing the term diseases of despair, and opioid dependency is one of them. Um, can you talk a little bit about that term, and and maybe who we're talking about with diseases of despair? I mean, you just said that you know it sort of runs the gamut when it comes to opioid addiction. I guess what I'm wondering is, um, are there people who are at greater risk? For something like that, are some people genetically predisposed? I'm, I guess I'm I'm trying to get at like who might be more inclined to wind up in this place. Well, uh, yeah, I mean there are there is a addiction does tend to run in families, and there is some evidence that you know genes play a role. Um, so you know it is important for people to to recognize if they have a family history of addiction in their family, you know they may be at increased risk, and it it may even be something to keep in mind to speak with your children about or you know, to have honest conversations. But it really is sort of a combination of, you know, perhaps genetic and environmental factors that can all contribute to somebody having an increased risk of an opioid use disorder. Uh, certainly, you know, early adverse childhood experiences like physical or sexual uh, abuse, uh, you know, unstable family homes, uh, living in environments where there is a high availability of drugs in the environment and a normalized attitude around drug use, uh, <clears throat> these things can all increase uh, someone's risk as well. So uh, it's really a multifactorial uh, thing that can contribute to someone's risk. Mm -hmm. um, 
In our last minute or two before we take a break here, Dr. Valdez, we've talked before on this podcast about how addiction can often be worse for family members than for the person who is struggling with the disease. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of what you've seen in your practice in terms of family members and just kind of what family members need to know to be as supportive as possible. Mm, I think that's a very good point. And I think it's something we don't uh, really focus on enough, you know, because, I mean, certainly the patients are now the individual struggling with the addiction, but this really is a disease that, you know, affects a person's whole life, affects their relationships with their significant others, their loved ones, and their family. And the family does undergo a great deal of strain. Those that, you know, care for an individual with addiction, it can be difficult to see them struggling. Uh, There may be some um, challenging interactions and with them and and it's really hard to separate feelings of sort of anger at the disease a person has uh, versus the this person that you love so uh it's important to to know that you know they're not the disease but uh they need to be patient and trust the uh, medical professionals that are involved in treatment i encourage them to you know join in appointments as able to discuss with the healthcare professional and the treatment team but, uh, you know, it, it is a great deal of strain for loved ones. So I, I think they really do need support. And there are some organizations like Al-Anon that can provide that support. Sorry, God. Yeah, I was just going to say we're going to take a quick break. We have much more to talk about, including what treatment options look like. We're talking with Dr. Joseph Valdez. You're listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast. And we'll be back right after this. WVIA presents a Mind Over Matter Minute. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Faulkner from Geisinger. Creating a safe home environment is vital when a family member is in crisis. Following these suggestions can help reduce the risk and chances of self-harm or suicide. Guns should be stored and unloaded in a locked safe. Lock away knives, razor blades, and other sharp objects. Keep all medications in a locked box. Lock all toxic household cleaners. Monitor online activities for researching methods of suicide or purchasing items that could be used for self-harm. If you are concerned that a loved one has been exhibiting signs of self-harm or suicide, contact a mental health professional or dial 911 immediately for an emergency evaluation. Remember, you are not alone. For more, visit wvia.org forward slash mindovermatter or dial 211 to speak with someone who can help. Mind Over Matter is presented by WVIA in partnership with Geisinger. You're listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I'm Tracy Matisak, and we're talking about opioid addiction. Our guest is Dr. Joseph Valdez. He provides addiction treatment services for Geisinger, both in Bloomsburg and in Wilkes-Barre, and he's also the director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program at Geisinger. Dr. Valdez, I want to talk a little bit about treatment options and, and the various ways that opioid addiction is being addressed. One of the things that I just very recently read was about naloxone and how the FDA may soon make that available over the counter. Can you talk a little bit about what naloxone is and whether that is something, to your knowledge, that we'll soon see available over the counter? Certainly, yeah, and I and I certainly hope we do see that available over the counter. You know, we should really decrease um, barriers to people accessing this medication because it can be life saving. Naloxone is essentially an, an antidote to an opioid overdose, so it can very quickly reverse the effects of opioids. Um, so if a family member, loved one, or just a, a friend sees someone 
that is not breathing and unconscious and is concerned of an opioid overdose, it can, naloxone is a drug that can be administered usually uh, intranasally through the, through the uh, spray in the nose and can within minutes uh, reverse the effects of those opioids and can be life-saving. So it is certainly something that we try to get in as many hands as possible. Yeah. What do treatment options look like for someone who is struggling with a dependency? Uh, so you know, treatment options, you know, uh, it really is recommended that treatment, there are a couple of characteristics of effective treatment, that they're, it's multidisciplinary, um, and that may involve, you know, physicians, other healthcare professionals, nurses, counselors, care managers, you know, a good treatment program will have all of these services because, you know, many folks dealing with addiction, they may have other medical conditions that have been neglected because of the addiction. They may have social needs such as insurance issues or help with housing or transportation. And so treatment really involves treating all of these things. Um, In addition, you know, accessing evidence-based medications, you know, and in general, I'll just mention that, you know, there's a big treatment gap when it comes to substance use disorders, where it's estimated only about 10% of people in need of specialized treatment receive it. Wow. We really need to do a better job of getting people, uh, destigmatizing the illness and getting people into treatment because we do have effective medications such as buprenorphine, which is in what's known as Suboxone, methadone or naltrexone or Vivitrol. So there are medications that we have a good evidence base can work very well. Um, and often a combination of medication and counseling together uh, is recommended. So it sounds like it really is a team effort that you need to sort of assemble a team around you to help with this. And I'm wondering, like, where do you start for someone who's listening, maybe who has a family member who is having this struggle or struggling themselves? How do you, what's the first step on that road to assembling that sort of care team to help you, you know, get to the other side of this? Well, I would encourage them to, you know, reach out to their healthcare uh, provider and share that, you know, they're having some difficulties and are interested in, you know, options that they can have for, for treatment. And just letting a loved one know, for example, you're, you know, you're here for them, you support them, you you want to help them when they're ready, you're, you're willing to you know, provide whatever help they can, drive them to an appointment, um, you know, just sit with them if they're nervous. Uh, but I think encouraging them to speak with their healthcare provider uh, would be important. And, you know, they can then, you know, help this individual connect with resources that uh, can help with their treatment, referral to specialty services or uh, counseling or, you know, someone that is more experienced in treating this illness and, and can provide the specialized treatment an individual needs. And for family members, doctor, and I know we've talked about this a little bit earlier earlier on in our conversation, what do you recommend for them? You talked about, you know, how easy it can be to be angry with the disease and to sort of distinguish that from the person who is struggling. In terms of caring for themselves um, and, and keeping their own sort of energy and mental state in a good place, what do you recommend for family members to to be able to be most helpful to the people they love. Well, you know, patience, and because this is treatment needs to, it takes time, you know, for someone to um, recover from opioid addiction, and particularly early in treatment, it can be a roller coaster emotionally for a patient, um, and so they need to understand that, you know, a little bit of patience, and they also need to understand that, you know, the, the, they themselves that they, they cannot cure or uh, the illness, you know, they, they can provide support 
the individual uh, suffering with the issue, you know, is responsible for following up with their treatment. And, uh, you know, it can be hard because, you know, you have a loved one, you want to do everything you can for them, but, uh, you know, you can't uh, do it for a person. They have mm-hmm. to uh, take those steps. And also for the family members themselves, like in terms of caring for themselves, right? Like, do you have any recommendations um, for, you know, just ways to kind of look out for themselves while they're looking out for their loved one? Yes. I mean, it is important that they, you know, take care of their mental health. You know, they're, they uh, get they get good sleep and eat well and take care of themselves. I mean, there are support organizations like Al-Anon, which provides, uh, you know, fellowship for uh, family members or loved ones of someone who has an addiction and there are many meetings where people could meet and, and develop a network of support uh, for themselves and and that's important dr valdez you mentioned earlier in our conversation about you know um opioids being uh, prescribed too much in some cases and that there were lots of reasons why we got to the point where we are today and i'm wondering if you can address the changes that have been made um, within the medical world to try to minimize the risk of a patient who may need strong pain relief um, but to to provide that relief but reduce the likelihood of them becoming addicted Um, what sort of changes have been made or how is the medical profession thinking differently about the way that opioids are prescribed now well the medical profession has become much more careful in the prescription of opioids you know uh, the number of prescriptions for opioids that have been dispensed at pharmacies, for example, have really decreased. Um, and I think recently, 2020 was sort of the lowest rate in the last 15 years of opioid prescriptions uh, dispensed. So we're being much more careful about giving opioids um, and, and trying to preserve them for situations when it's really needed, like severe uh, acute pain, um, like postoperatively or end-of-life care in somebody that's having severe pain and exploring alternatives where possible to opioids to manage pain, such as you know, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, Tylenol physical therapy, other drugs that have less risk. Unfortunately, opioids they are very effective at, at um, uh, alleviating, alleviating pain, and there is a role for them. You know, we have to understand that you know, they may be needed at times to help people that are really struggling with pain. But uh, also to be cognizant of the you know, and fair about the risks of these medications that it is quite it is realistically a quite dangerous drug. So uh, you know we have, have processes where we're, we're monitoring the quantity that is dispensed. There are uh, um, databases such as the prescription drug monitoring programs where uh, prescribers can kind of monitor that a patient is where they're getting their prescriptions from, how often they're getting it filled, you know, that might tip off if there's some signs that a person is developing an opioid use disorder. So, you know, it, it has to be done, you know, carefully and patients need to, there needs to be an honest conversation with patients about the risk of the medications. Yeah. And if I understood you correctly, then it sounds like there are some checks and balances in place that can prevent a patient maybe from, you know, getting different prescriptions from different doctors or having them filled in different places, right? Exactly. Yeah. Dr. Valdez, how did you get into this field? What sparked your interest in um, treating addiction? You know, I uh, have always been drawn to what we would call behavioral health. So uh, areas of uh, like depression and, um, you know, mental illness and how that affects a person's overall, you know, physical health as well. And as I went along in my medical training, I 
came across many patients that, uh, you know, we knew how to treat the, the medical complications of, uh, such as COPD or cirrhosis of the liver or infections. And the real reason that many of these patients were getting these conditions were due to an underlying addiction, you know, smoking in the case of COPD, alcohol addiction in the case of liver cirrhosis, uh, infectious disease from injection drug use. And it became kind of clear to me that we didn't really understand how to address the underlying issue in these cases. That, uh, at least at the time, I didn't understand, and I didn't know why many patients were coming back with a similar issue, and the real cause was addiction, and uh, it wasn't seemingly being addressed. So it kind of sparked an interest in me uh, about this field, and I started to explore what kind of science that we, you know, what do we have a science about addiction, what is going on with a person in their brain. And I found out that we do. We really do have an evolving, it's a newer field, but we have an evolving body of scientific literature and research that is trying to understand the disease of addiction and, you know, how we can better treat people that are suffering with it. Well, you mentioned earlier on that the science is pretty encouraging and that you've seen some really great outcomes with the patients that you work with. Um, we like to try to end on a hopeful note with this podcast, and I'd love if you would say a little bit more about that, about what the prognosis is when the treatment options are available and the words of encouragement that you might have for people who are in the struggle and the people who love them. Well, I would just try to express my empathy for them that, you know, I understand that this is a, a real challenge. It can be very difficult. It can be, uh, there can be feelings of hopelessness, but uh, there really is reason to believe that a person can get better from struggling with opioid addiction or any addiction. You know, we are continuing to make improvements in our treatment. Uh, there are six evidence-based medications available that can be utilized. And I've certainly seen some tremendous transformations of people that have benefited terrifically. You know, I have a patient that at one point, uh, you know, was homeless and living on the street of Philadelphia and, uh, you know, now um, has been sober for over uh, 10 plus years. Uh, he has his own construction company, is quite successful. And, uh, you know, his family is doing wonderful and his life has really turned around. And, and uh, you know, this you know, it, it takes time, as we say, one day at a time, but, you know, with uh, availing yourself to the resources out there, you know, and appropriate treatment, uh, recovery is possible. Yeah, that's that's a great story. And it just is a reminder that there absolutely is hope and help on the other side of this. Uh, Dr. Joseph Valdez provides addiction treatment services at Geisinger, both in Bloomsburg and in Wilkesbury, And he is also the director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at Geisinger. Dr. Valdez, thank you so much for making time to talk with us on this very important topic. Thank you for having me, Tracy. You're listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Matisak. And for more information on this and other mental health topics, check out our website at wvia.org slash mindovermatter. Thanks for listening. See you next time. WVIA's Mind Over Matter, a mental health initiative, is underwritten by Geisinger. When you hear Geisinger, what comes to mind? A hospital? Doctors? Health insurance? We're all those things. But here's something you might not think of. We're also your local pharmacy. 
Geisinger Pharmacy isn't just for people in the hospital, it's for you. Want to fill a prescription? We've got you covered. Just need over-the-counter stuff? We've got that too. And Geisinger Pharmacy is run by your friends and neighbors. We're your local healthcare system and your local pharmacy. 